0: Staying Together The Blagden Family in the 1930s and 40s by Henry Blagden, Margaret Ellsworth, John Blagden, Ruth Gale, and Priscilla Hall. Introduction Our father, Sandy Arthur Basil Blagden, and mother, Catherine Isabel, née Parry, had six children born between 1926 and 1939. Elizabeth, Henry, Margaret, John, Ruth, and Priscilla. When World War II broke out in September 1939, they were living in Sussex in South East England. A year later, all but Sandy were in South Africa in Cape Town. Catherine and Elizabeth went into two separate hospitals, where Catherine died of tuberculosis in December 1940, and Elizabeth of a heart disorder in February 1941. The five other children had been somewhat dispersed, at one stage living in four different places. Only a handful of people in Cape Town knew about the Blagdons, but they reassured the dying Catherine that her children would be cared for. They kept in touch with Sandy in England, who for a while could not get on a ship to South Africa. Above all, they made it their business to settle the five children into a suitable new life, even if just for the time being, and bring them together again so that, having lost so much, they could nevertheless go on living as a family. A childless couple, Muir and Barbara Greave, were increasingly at the heart of this enterprise. They ended up buying a huge house where they could care for Margaret, John and Ruth. It was directly over the road from Henry's school. Soon Priscilla was being fostered a mere block away, finally going to the Greaves five years later. Meanwhile, Sandy had reached Cape Town in March 1941, and at last he and the children met again. He and their foster parents got on beautifully. It was clear to them that the children should stay where they were, with Sandy at hand to join in the family doings, but living elsewhere. At 66, he was too old to set up a home and bring them up on his own, and they were already well set and thriving in their own households. The Blagdons thus ended up with an odd style of family life, but it really was a miracle of generosity and common sense, and it worked very well. This is the story that we, the five children, tell in more detail in this book. Our readers will need a little bit of background. Our father Sandy was the youngest of seven children in an English vicar's family. Born in 1874... He grew up in the later Victorian period, with its pros and cons. We met a few preconceptions from that time, but he had such an easy nature they never got in the way. There was not much money, but he got a Cambridge degree and tended towards being a teacher. He and a pal started a little school on genial creative lines, which went bang eventually because they couldn't make it pay. Then, because Sandy loved a vigorous outdoor life, he went off to Australia in 1912 and began clearing ground in Queensland to grow pineapples. There he met, and it seems pretty well fell in love with, a beautiful, gracious teenager, Iris Musprat. She may have been partly the reason why we ended up in Cape Town later on. She certainly played a vital part in helping us through the mess we were in when we arrived. The pineapple farming had just got going when World War I began in 1914. Sandy abandoned the farm and joined up. After the war, he returned to England, where he had already met our mother, and they married in 1922. Catherine's family was semi-genteel and far wealthier than the Blagdons. She had an adored elder brother, Ted, who joined the Royal Navy as a cadet at the age of 12, and had the unquestioned freedom of a career ahead of him. She, born in 1894, seemed doomed to a polite, vacant life in drawing-rooms. One must be able to talk intelligently about nothing, to find the nothings to talk about, in short, always to be grown-up and graceful, she wrote at the age of 18. Then came the war, which saved her generation of women from a life of nothing but the social round. Catherine became a hospital auxiliary, a VAD, as Voluntary Aid Detachment aides were called, and considered going on to train as a nurse but hadn't begun by the time she and Sandy met. Maybe her ideas changed at that point. As a married couple, they lived first in a village called Hannington, where Sandy started a small market garden. Then, in 1927, they had to look for a bigger house as the first of their children arrived. It was a good time to move anyway, because a lot of country properties were going cheap after the war. Four miles from East Grinstead, in Sussex, they found and fell in love with the Bower House, an ancient rambling building with twenty acres of land, a lot of it woodland, but enough left open to make a sizeable market garden, one that should yield enough income to keep the family. Sandy was fifty-two years old, fit and strong. It would be hard work, but he enjoyed it. A couple in Hannington, Mr. and Mrs. Locke, agreed to move with them. He would help with the gardening, and she would work as a housekeeper. The Locks were given a small house on the Bauer House property. There was very little money. Sandy had a war pension, and there were a few small investments. Our parents could probably fall back on Catherine's family for financial support, but as far as we know they managed on their own. The family lived modestly, saving where they could, while being quite rich in their interests and surroundings. They had friendly neighbours and good contact with some of their own family, notably Catherine's parents in Uckfield an hour's drive away, and Sandy's sister Therese, usually called Tag, who sometimes came to stay. All should have been well, but Elizabeth had been born with heart trouble, And then Catherine contracted TB, and so did John. And then World War II came. Our story starts just before the House days of the 1930s and runs through the move to South Africa and our childhood in Cape Town in the 1940s. There are bound to be clashes of memory among us. After all, we only began putting the record together half a century later. But we have tried to sort out the glitches or else say candidly where we disagree. Why did we write at all? We ourselves have always been strongly aware of this period in our life, and it now seems that our children, and theirs in turn, are interested too. Muir-Greaves details were recorded in 1991. Henry and John's contributions began with them talking on tape in 1996, and in the same year Margaret wrote a good six-pager on English holidays and nannies. Then there was a lull until in 2004 the project at last went ahead with Margaret and Henry writing at length. John decided to stick with his taped record, which may come across as rather a different style. Ruth, the most understated of us, finally accepted being swept into the text in 2006. Email enabled us to work together, even though we now live in England, John, Portugal, Ruth and South Africa. Johannesburg, Henry, Cape Town, Margaret, and Grahamstown, Priscilla. Priscilla did the overall edit, guided by everyone's responses as the text got bounced around the world until it reached its present shape. Margaret did the map of the House with help from Henry, and drew Monteith for the front cover. The excerpts from Monica Dickens' One Pair of Hands are included by courtesy of the Peters, Fraser and Dunlop group, Sandy and Michaela Ellsworth in Kent kindly went all the way to the Bower House in Sussex to take extra photos. Tim Bull checked up on its historical records, and Ruth Hall got us to include a map of the place, plus the checklist of the main names we mention. Jen Holliday, as final proofreader, saved us from spots of shame. The cover design grew with the help from Lynn Cordell. Our special thanks go to Lynette Patterson, whose advice saved us from producing a patchwork text that would never have worked. The final form was inspired partly by a wonderful book that Ishbel Sholto Douglas gave us, a biography of her mother, produced by Ishbel's sister, Elspeth Jack. As for Susan Abraham, who designed the book and did the layout, we knew about her skill and perfectionism, which is why we had approached her in the first place, but we are in awe at seeing how a total outsider could enter so intuitively into the spirit of the book.